You are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about mental health as a human right. October being the Mental Health Awareness Month, awareness is raised and efforts are made to educate the public about mental health issues. In South Africa alone, more than 17 million people suffer from or are dealing with depression, substance abuse, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, just to mention a few. And according to the Mental Health Federation of South Africa, despite these statistics around mental health issues, government institutions in South Africa and across Africa do not prioritize uh, budgetary issues or make policies in such a way that addresses these mental health issues. So often mental health is regarded as the orphan of the healthcare system. So in an effort to reduce the stigma around mental health and to raise awareness of what it is, today we'll be talking about the issue of mental health as a human right. And today we have Dr. Linda Blockland, who is the acting head of department of the student counseling unit at the University of Pretoria. And we'll be talking about mental health as a human right. Dr. Blockland, welcome to this week's episode. So what I'm really curious to know is what sparked an interest within you to to get into the field of psychology? Why did I move over into psychology? Um, well, w- one of the reasons is that uh, my family um, has struggled with mental illness in, in one way or another. Um, so I've always been fascinated by mental illness and I also... Uh, studied um, English literature and found myself always drawn to the, um, to the literature that focused on, on mental illness and human behavior and motivations behind human behavior. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the main reason why I went into psychology. Mm. That's very interesting, actually, that you raise that. A lot of families do struggle with mental illness, but I'm not quite sure if everyone understands what it is, you know. What makes it difficult is that people with mental illness often, because mental illness affects feelings and thoughts, it, it often shows itself and manifests in behavior. The moment people start behaving a little bit differently from what people expect, a little bit different from the norm, um, other, pe- other people feel uncomfortable about it. So what, what is mental illness? Mental illness uh, very much has a, a physiological component, and I think this is important, and it often helps people to, to know that. It helps them to accept it then. It's not just as if they're sort of uh, crazy um, mm-hmm. and there's no explanation for yeah. it. Um, there are explanations for mental illness, and I think this is very important for us to know. Yeah. I think that's a very important point that you raised there, you know, because I think that's also what stems the stigma around mental illness when people start labeling, you know, those who suffer from it um, as being crazy. So can you please explain the difference between mental health and mental illness, if there is any? There certainly is. Again, this is, uh, you know, there are schools of thought that might differ from this, but basically mental health or wellness deals with the so-called normal personality um, people uh, don't necessarily have any kind of mental illness but but the normal personality it, it's normal and healthy to have ups and downs so it, it's a perfectly normal healthy and actually an essential emotion to feel anxious at times 
um, stress uh, plays a role in our lives. And th these kind of emotions are normal and healthy and they, they um, facilitate our moving forward, our motivation and our ability to, to act in this world. Mm -hmm. The difference is when, if, if we start talking about mental illness, that sits on a completely different continuum. Um, and there again also, um, there are ups and downs within the, uh, the mental illness. So mental illness is um, where whatever one is feeling or thinking starts impacting quite seriously on the way one is functioning and living one's life. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for shedding clarity on the differences between the two. All right, so I just want to understand who is at risk of mental illness? Well, actually, we all are. Everybody is vulnerable to some form of mental illness, um, whether it be severe anxiety, PTSD, depression, and so on. Some people are more at risk than others. Um, there can be a, a genetic vulnerability, for example, or people living in particular circumstances that render them vulnerable to becoming mentally ill, where they can't cope with what is around them. So is there a mental illness that can be cured or is it just treatable? How does it work exactly? It's not, it's not really useful to think of mental illness in, in terms of being curable or not, but rather manageable. Because uh, none of us are perfect. Uh, it's just that some of us have better coping skills than others and more refined coping skills. For whatever reason, maybe we have better resources. But people with mental illness, generally speaking, can, with the, with the correct treatment, can learn to manage their mental illness. And there are many very successful people who've conducted their lives with mental illness. Mm -hmm. You raised an important point that sparked um, just two questions from my end. You talked about um, the coping mechanisms. So what I need to know is, how does one get to a point where they discover that this is the way I can cope? Is it a matter of taking medication? Is it stress management? If we talk about mental wellness, mental health, and coping, people wouldn't necessarily need to take medication if they're healthy. Medication definitely plays a very important role in the whole idea of mental health, wellness, and illness. But there's a lot one can do without medication in terms of coping. So what it depends on is the resources that the person has available to them. Social connections are extremely important because we're social creatures. And the moment somebody becomes isolated, we see stress levels rising and that leaves one vulnerable to uh, mental illness also. So yes, um, learning to balance one's life, bringing the, the, the right brain into play um, and not just focusing on the left brain becomes important and vice versa. So balance is very important and, and um, you know, getting leisure time, um, doing something constructive, being creative, uh, as, as well as working and, and focusing on the, the usual life chores that, that face us. Okay, maybe we should back it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. What kind of mental illnesses are there? You mentioned uh, PTSD. Is that a yes. mental illness or is it a result of something? And then you also mentioned anxiety, depression. And I understand there's schizophrenia, bipolar. Can you just shed light into what that is? If someone has bipolar, does it mean they can manage that illness without medication? 
if someone has PTSD, can they manage that illness without medication? How exactly does this work? Okay, there, there are many different kinds of mental illness, as, as you said, and they get classified into broad categories and then subclassified after that. Uh, the mood disorders is a very large basket of mental illnesses, and bipolar mood disorder fits into that, depression fits into that, and different kinds of depression as well. Okay. The anxiety disorders are another big basket, and PTSD would fit into that. Mm-hmm. Um, along with obsessive compulsive disorder and, and many other very specific kinds of anxiety disorders. Then one gets major psychoses and, and bipolar disorder uh, and, and any of the others also, even depression, can also show psycho- psychosis, which, which is a symptom actually. But schizophrenia would fall into the major psychoses. And uh, but then we get the, the whole spectrum of personality disorders as well, which is something completely different. And they all respond to medication in different ways, and, and medication will play a different role in them. So with the anxiety disorders, there are many anxiety disorders that can be managed fairly well, depending on the individual, without medication, but with very specific kinds of uh, psychotherapy treatment. Right. And there are reasons that some people cannot take medication, mm-hmm. so they would like to manage their mental illness uh, as far as possible without medication. For example, airline pilots may not take medication. Right. One can manage uh, certain levels of depression also fairly well without medication. But there comes a point, and with certain uh, mental illnesses, where medication is almost essential to, to allow the person to function optimally. So bipolar mood disorder, and there, and there are different kinds of bipolar mood disorder, some of those, it's, almost, it's, it's actually essential to take medication, as well as to receive psychotherapy um, to help one understand uh, one's moods and how to manage them better. Right. Okay. So what I understand you saying is that a person needs to know, they need to be fully aware of what is going on around them for them to be able to make the choice um, as to whether or not to take medication. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Um, people need to be really informed. If they, ha- if they have been diagnosed with mental illness, it really helps them manage it if they know exactly what they're dealing mm, with right. and how it affects them as an individual. Mm. Okay, so I think this being Mental Health Awareness Month, I think it's important that we just talk about how people are not aware of these things because I feel like the minute we start talking about you need to be aware, it means you have been privy to a certain kind of knowledge and the issue right now is people don't know what mental health is they don't have that sort of awareness of what's going on around them so when do you think is the right time for someone to stop themselves and say hey i think i need to to stop for a minute and just get some help some consultation because sometimes you go through these emotions these feelings and not even understand what it is that's going on for you to at least know or make the decision to to find help which leads to terrible situations like people committing suicide because they genuinely don't know what to do so i think just in short at what point does the person realize that i think i may need help I think the important thing is for people to be able to self-reflect and to recognize when they are not coping. And it's, I don't believe that it's important for people to make a self-diagnosis. In fact, I think that that can be quite dangerous. So people don't need to 
feel that, okay, I know that they're depressed or they're showing symptoms of this or symptoms of that. If, if they feel that they're not coping and they, they recognize a change within themselves as well, it could be another indication, it's very important that they go and seek professional help. So whether they go to their local GP or um, the clinic where they find a nursing sister or make an appointment with directly with a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, there's nothing wrong with going and having a conversation and getting it checked out with a professional. And there they can be directed to the, to the appropriate help. Right, right. You know, I think the answer that you gave us would be, I would be perfect in an ideal world. Since we're talking about mental health as a human right, there's an issue of access and then there's the issue of medical professionals not being equipped with the right tools to handle patients that suffer from mental illnesses. So I think we want to talk about access as much as there's this whole issue of physical health and that sort of thing. Mental health is at the last of, you can't compare it with physical health. So let's talk about the issue of access and then take it from there. You're absolutely right. And unfortunately, it is true that not all health practitioners are fully aware, just like the rest of the public. Many of them are, and it's, it's very gratifying when uh, for example, a general practitioner refers somebody for further help. And, and that, that is a part of the larger problem, just as uh, very much part of the larger problem is that there are uh, very few resources given by government to mental health care. So there are literally handfuls of psychologists and psychiatrists in the public health system. Mm. It's completely inadequate and we're all very aware of that. So there's, there's a lot of work for us to do. Yes, we can, we can do what we can to make the public more aware, but as you say, it, it, it's a human right. You go to a health practitioner and, and you find that there's a, there's a bit of a closed door there. Mm -hmm. And this, unfortunately, is the experience of many people. And so those of us taking an interest in mental health care and working in the field, I think we have a duty to actually try and spread the awareness and, and to lobby for more resources put, in, put into mental health care. That's absolutely right. So what efforts have you made so far in, in as far as raising awareness is concerned? Well, just simply having a, a month like October month, Mental Health Awareness Month, I think is, is a great step. It gives us a whole month in which we can all focus on mental health. So you see radio shows popping up, uh, news items popping up, organizations like universities devote a lot of time and resources to it and that, that's really great and, and it's, I think especially within a university context because there you're reaching a lot of young people so the, the, these are the people of the future and it's important for them to go out with some awareness mm. of mental health. That's right I totally agree with you. I think when we look at the issue of mental health like for example you, you've just raised a point that we try to reach out to university students and I'd like to argue that when we look at the greater scheme of things, like when you look at the bigger picture of what the community is, I feel like university students are at the top scale of people. There's so many people who don't have access to universities and so many people who don't have the privilege to, to going to places where they can find this information and not by choice, you know? So how best can we reach out to these people Yes, I agree with you, um, and that, that is very, very challenging. 
we do have uh, clinics in, in, in the communities, in, the, in more rural areas, for example. Um, we can say, well, government needs to um, you know, bring their efforts to the table. And yes, this is absolutely 100% true. The community service here for mental health practitioners can go some way towards helping that. But getting uh, community leaders involved, teachers, church leaders, and so on, I think can also help a lot. Even, you know, not even moving out as far as the rural areas, if we, if we just look at the, the, the more urban areas and, for example, in the townships where we find a lot of people living with previous disadvantage, if I look at Malamodi, for example, mm -hmm. there you have a population one-third of the size of the Greater Chwani area, which is a very significant population and a very significant portion of the population. Mm -hmm. And the Itzhasen Clinic is actually the only real mental health care facility in that entire population. Uh, which is pretty horrifying. So I think that, uh, and, and it's wonderful that the University of Pretoria can um, bring some energy and resources into that. And I, I think that um, organizations that do have resources can look at whatever they can do um, to assist in areas such as that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I think you know, this is quite an interesting conversation for me as well. I know in Zimbabwe, for example, the only sort of uh, mental health access you can get is like a psychiatric institution, which I think is not quite there. You know, it's not fair because with the higher rates of poverty in these African countries, high levels of unemployment, you find the youth resorting to drug abuse and alcohol, substance abuse, if I want to call it that. So... I don't think these avenues are are quite appropriate to address these issues, you know. So what can you suggest to help? Is a psychiatric institution enough to deal with these issues? Yes and no. Largely no, especially if the resources are poor and, and, the, and the country as a whole is not showing a good record of attending to mental health. Because basically then what the institution is, is used for is to lock people away who are problematic when they're out in, in society. Um, and then the treatment that they're actually receiving within the institution is not geared or designed towards making them mentally healthy again, but rather to protect themselves and, and others from uh, the effects of their mental health. So I, I'm not trying to say that I'm totally against um, psychiatric institutions, not by any means. There, there are some wonderful examples of optimally functioning mental institutions. Um, I, I think the label itself has, has quite a lot of stigma around it, um, but certainly one can have such facilities that, that can really help people and, and, and treat people in, in a very humane way, um, yeah, while acknowledging and, and providing for their human rights. Yeah, I think that's the other issue that we would like to raise. It's to my understanding that people suffering from mental illnesses are denied access to certain basic human rights needs, for example, the right to vote, um, just to mention a few. So what are some of the other human rights violations, if I want to call it that, do you know that people with mental illnesses are facing? It's true, the, the right to vote. Um, well, the, the right to vote would be uh, if somebody's uh, locked up in a mental institution. If they're out in society, they're not walking around with a label on their head. So yes, they can go and vote. 
but they're, they're treated with a lot of stigma. Uh, so it's difficult for them to, to get jobs, to, to hold jobs, if they are in a job, to get promotion. Mm, that's um, true. Yeah, sometimes even there are even debates around whether they should be allowed to have children. Um, mm. When it comes to raising children, if they already have children, it becomes very, very challenging for them often to hold on to their children. Mm. Um, they feel vulnerable that the state can take their children away if they do something that is considered wrong. Yeah. rather than assisting them and facilitating them to be better parents. So yes, they, they do face a lot of challenges from society. Yeah. You raised the issue of stigma. What do you think is the driving force behind the stigma around mental health? Basically, I think it's a, it's a lack of understanding. Um, and, and I think it's probably a very complex topic, so I, I don't think that I'm going to be able to touch on all of the issues or even think of all of the issues right now. but. Certainly one of them would be that people who have mental illness, as I mentioned earlier, it affects the way they think, it affects the way they feel, and therefore it affects the way they behave. And as soon as people start behaving in a way that other people think is out of the norm, um, people become suspicious of them, and, and that's where stigma starts. People are different. So people with mental illness don't always behave differently, but if their mental illness is active, and not adequately treated or always going untreated at the time, you, you can very likely see differences in, in their behaviour from, from the norm. Mm. So what can governments do in order to address the issue of stigma around mental illness? I, I think, um, and, and you, might have, uh, you might have implied this, we shouldn't leave everything up to government. I, I think we okay. shouldn't leave anything and everything up to government. Okay. Um, I think that the community needs to take responsibility for a lot of what happens in society. So, yes, I think you know, there are certain things we would like the government to provide, but I think the community and society also has a responsibility to bring it to government's attention. So that brings us back to the idea of lobbying and creating awareness um, so that government starts recognising that there is a problem here and the society actually cares about it. Mm, that's right. We talked about access and in our discussion we talked about medication. What are some of the factors that influence or affect access to mental health services? Well, we could mention some of them. Um, access to mental health services, obviously, the more resources one has at one's disposal, for instance, in terms of income and the ability to afford private medical aid, and here I'm talking about the South African situation, mm-hmm. and to, to some extent it is very much the same all over the world, but here it is, is, a, is a particularly um, intense problem. So if one has access to private funds, um, one can access better mental health care, and one can actually shop around until one finds the mental health care that, that fits one. There are unfortunately many people who don't have the private funding to do so mm-hmm. and then they are reliant on resources within the community and sometimes they can be very helpful resources. So I also want to say that we need to recognise that, that communities have lived for many generations without access to the Western kind of mental health care mm-hmm. and they've been able to assist in some way and we can look at some of those strategies and help uh, refine them. Some of them perhaps haven't been so helpful, but to help people in any area without resources to access medication and uh, psychotherapy, for example, 
Yeah, I mean, I think we, I think we're all aware that that, that is not available to everybody, and mm. that, that is uh, that is it's quite common. sad. Yeah, that's true. So, do we have African, if I want to call it that, traditional um, alternatives to addressing mental illnesses? Yeah. Um, I, I know that there are. Um, and some of them may be helpful, and, and I think that there is a lot more research that needs to be done into that, which are helpful and for which conditions, um, and what, uh, what, what other treatments would need to be um, enacted around those uh, herbal and traditional treatments. Um, so perhaps not all conditions would be uh, amenable to being treated with those, but maybe some are. I think it's it's it probably important. It is important, and I think it may be very useful for us to know um, to have a closer look at that. Hmm. All right. So that's a call for researchers to look into yeah. um, alternatives, uh, traditional alternatives to mental health. All right. So I just want to ask you if there are other general remarks and recommendations, or something that you'd like to shed light on as far as this issue of mental health is concerned. At this point, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I, I think that we've covered quite a, a broad um, uh, spectrum here of, of the issues around mental health. I agree. <laughs> They've been very stimulating. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Thank you so much. So that was Dr. Linda Brockland from the University of Pretoria. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musinahama, in conversation with Dr. Linda Blockland. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.